Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. chapter 3. We are going to start at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3 again. Last week we took a little left turn to talk about the names of God and that they were revelatory in their nature. But two weeks ago we read through the majority of chapter 3. And the emphasis was on the fact that Paul was talking about a mystery, something that previous generations did not know, but that was right there. It was right in the scripture. It was very plain that God was going to introduce Gentiles into salvation by grace through faith, but that was still a mystery. God had not revealed it yet. So that was the emphasis that we put on this text two weeks ago. We're going to go back through it today so that we can see what the actual benefits are that Paul refers to now that the Gentiles have been brought into faith in Christ, what benefits are achieved as a result of that. Paul is getting ready to start what is technically the second half of this letter, and I told you in the introduction to the letter that it is very much an indicative, imperative letter. The first three chapters concentrate on who you are in Christ, and then the last three chapters are how you live because of who you are in Christ. And chapter 3 is kind of a transition between those two topics. And so as Paul is talking about the Gentiles being introduced into the church, and into salvation through the Jewish Messiah. He is also beginning to form the standard that he wants for the church. And that standard is unity. It's part of the reason that we sang, brethren, we are met to worship. Turns out that the hymn book simply does not have a whole lot of hymns about 
let's be in unity. Let's get together and make sure that we're all united. There, there just aren't a lot of hymns that say that. But it's very important to Paul's formulation, Paul's concept of what the church is and what the church should be like. So this time, as we go through this chapter, I want you to see how Paul is arguing for unity, not only between Jew and Gentile, because naturally, after their history of being in opposition to each other, it would take the work of God and his spirit to create actual unity between them. But Paul is going to do the same thing that he always does, the indicative imperative. In order to say, be in unity with one another, he starts by telling them who they are in Christ and how they all share a common hope and a common spirit and a common baptism, a common savior. And that is the reason, that is the cause for the unity within the church. You'll notice that he does not say, be united with one another because of the value that each of you brings to the party because every one of you has a level of coolness that just happens as soon as you become Christian. The simple reality is Christ calls fallen people. Christ calls sinners with all their foibles and all their difficulties in life. And so if the church was supposed to be united on the basis of each of our relative coolness, then we'd never reach unity because there are just simply people in the church who rub us the wrong way. The personalities are different. We've been raised different. We have different backgrounds. We have different histories. We're raised by different parents. We've come up with different traditions. And then you take people like that, cram them into a room and say, now be one. And you have to give people a basis on which that unity should exist. And so that's what Paul is really arguing in the latter part of chapter 3. That unity within the church is based on the commonality of our faith in Christ, the commonality of the spirit that we all possess. And then he says that we need to do the work to keep the bonds of unity that we should be diligent to keep the bonds of unity. In other words, don't emphasize the things that make us different. In the world that we live in right now, that world that is under the prince of the power of the air, unity is the last thing you ever hear about. In fact, politically right now, people are being divided by absolutely every difference that can be found between us. Whether that is a racial difference, a racial distinction, right now, and it's a shame that it happened. I'm sorry about the shooting that happened just recently, but now all of a sudden the cry is to separate Oriental folks from white folks. Before that, it was separating black folks from white folks. Anything they can do to separate us, they will do. You know, for years, you've heard me say, that you can find the standards in the Bible. You can read what God says, what his commandments say, what his expectations are, how Christian behavior ought to look. And then you look at the world and you can see the world systematically undermining what God has said, whether we're talking about the profanation of marriage, 
whether we're talking about the consistent killing of babies in the womb, ripping them out of their mother's womb, whether we're talking about gender, which you would think would just be obvious, Jesus said, God made one man, one woman. There you go. That's gender right there. That, there, there it is. The two sexes. There they are. The world now is trying to tell you that there's a multiplicity of genders, and you can pretty much choose your own. Well, here's another example where the Bible says unity, but the unity is based in the concept and knowledge of God. And the world says, don't be united. Don't agree. Don't get along with each other. I, right now, happen to be the most hated type of person on the planet. I'm a white European male. It doesn't get worse than me. All the white European males in the room just agreed with me. And Christian. Oh, add Christian to that. And and preacher, and you just know I'm getting invited to all the good affairs and parties. So we are being told, again, by the world, that it's man against woman. It's gender against gender. It's black against white. It's rich against poor, the 1% versus the 99%. It's Republican versus Democrat. You can think of many more examples. It's always us against them. And if you don't have a them in your life, the government will happily provide you with one. They'll tell you who it is you're not supposed to like. Growing up, I went to a different school every year until my high school years because my father was transferred, moved, and traveled so often. And one thing I knew was, with each new city and each new school that I got to, I was told which group I was supposed to hate. And it was always different depending on where we were. Houston hated different people groups than Detroit did. Ohio hated different people groups than Dallas did. And so every couple of years, I had to find out which group I wasn't supposed to like anymore. The Bible, and especially within the church, emphasizes unity. And Paul says that we are supposed to work diligently to protect, to keep, to establish those bonds of unity. And the reason he says that is because the whole world is trying to tear us apart. Not only tear us apart by gender, or by race, or by monetary income, by whatever else, but they would love to tear the church apart. They would love to get the church fighting with itself, destroy itself from within, and that is something that Satan has been concentrating on for a long time. It's just here recently that he seems to be really good at it. Go on social media one day and just watch the Christians arguing with the Christians. There's just so much division going on. And that's not the way that Paul originally designed it. It's not the way he expected the church to be. So this time through chapter 3 of Ephesians, we are going to concentrate on Paul preparing the church to contend for unity, especially considering that now Gentiles 
are part of the church that is established in the Jewish Messiah. And if they could get along, I can get along with Shane. I don't know why I picked Shane, but I was just looking for a cantankerous old man, not unlike myself. So. <laughs> chapter 3, actually we're going to start reading in chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, Paul says to the Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, with the Hagios, with the holy ones that God has chosen for himself, and you are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Paul just likened the body of Christ to a building that Christ himself is building. He is the foundation. He's the chief corner. Everything else is built on him. And then each individual person has their place within the building. In a moment, Paul is also going to compare the church to a human body and say that every part of the body has its place. So he is trying to find analogies that he can use to describe how the whole of the church works united, works together. They all support one another. They all keep each other in their appropriate place because Christ, the master builder, is building his church. For this reason, says chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. I pointed out two weeks ago that the word stewardship there, in some of your translations, it might even say dispensation, the dispensing of, is the word oikonomia. In the Greek, what the oikonomia was, was a servant within a household who was responsible for the distribution of the things that belonged to the master. So that has much more impact on me than just the word stewardship. The word stewardship is a reasonable translation, but what Paul is saying is, by God's grace, he assigned me the job of taking what is his and then distributing it to you so that you get some of what the master has given me to give you. He's going to use that word again in just a few verses. It's translated in the NASB by a different word. It's going to come up as administration next time it comes up. But whether it's the administration, whether it's the stewardship, whether it's the dispensation, it all means the same thing. I have been assigned by God to distribute the things of God, and he told me to distribute them to the Gentiles. And that is why Paul is a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation, 
there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before to you in brief. By revelation, it's not something I figured out. It was right there in the text. It was right there in the Holy Scriptures. It was right there in the Word of God, but I didn't get it. Nobody got it. None of the Jews got it. We just couldn't see it until God revealed it to us. And so by revelation, I now know about this mystery. I now know that the Gentiles are being brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And I now know that I am the apostle to the Gentiles for the purpose of bringing Gentiles to faith in the Jewish Messiah. By revelation, there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. And it has been revealed to his holy apostles and his prophets by the Holy Spirit. Previous generations didn't get this mystery. Previous generations of Jews, people who had the scripture, didn't understand that God intended to bring Gentiles into community with the Jews through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice how often Paul keeps putting Jesus Christ right at the center of this entire thing. His theology is very Christocentric. His ecclesiology, his understanding of the church is very Christocentric. The introduction of Gentiles and Jews and Gentiles worshiping together is because of Christ. It's all through Christ. It's a result of the work of Christ. He's the cause, the reason for unity within the church. This mystery, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, to be specific That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That phrase, fellow members of the body, is one of Paul's compound words. It's clear what he's saying, that the Gentiles and the Jews are now collectively part of the same building, part of the same body, part of the same new man. This is Paul's theology of the body of Christ. So in order to understand that more fully, keep your finger there in Ephesians, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church being a very troubled, splintered, difficult church, Paul laid out his theology. Paul laid out his ecclesiology of the body of Christ. Chapter 12. And we're going to start in verse 11. Paul again arguing for unity within the church. By the way, I take heart in the fact that Paul has to so frequently argue for unity within the church. That means that the church just does not naturally come to unity. They still 
find difficulty with each other. They still hold grudges. They still argue with each other. That's just human beings. And yet Paul says, ideally within the church, we ought to be all unified because of this reason. Look at verse 11. It is the one and the same spirit who works all things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Same spirit. It's the same spirit. Before that, he says it's the same God. Before that, it's the same Christ. We all worship the same God. We are all saved by the same Christ. We are all led by the same spirit. Therefore, there ought to be unity. Starting in verse 12, he's going to describe that unity by describing and by creating the analogy of the human body. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body though they are many are one body so also is Christ that's how the church ought to operate how it ought to think of itself as one body with separate members now he's going to go into detail about how the hand can't say to the foot or no part of the body can talk to another part of the body and say, I have no need of you because every part of your body is important to you the same way within the church. There may be people who are a different ethnicity than you. There may be people who are richer than you. There may be people who are a different gender than you. That is not cause for separation. That's cause for you to take up the fight take up the determination to maintain the bonds of peace within the church, the bonds of unity with one another. Okay, so let's be very clear about what Paul is saying. There's one body and yet it has many members. Paul is saying, in your body, in your physical body, you have a nose, you have a mouth, you have ears, you have elbows, you have knees, you have kidneys. You have all these different things, and they all do a different thing. They all have a different function, but they're all part of your body collectively. If your kidneys stop, doesn't matter how good your ears are. The body itself collectively works as a unit. And so Paul argues that even as as the body is one and yet has all these various different members... And they're all members of the body, though they're many. They're still one body. You typically, when you say, uh, well, it happened this morning. When Leon said to me, oh, now I've got the body aches. He did not say to me, oh, goodness, my spleen is achy. He did not say, my left elbow is feeling a little dodgy. No, he said, my body, and I know what he meant by that. That the whole of his body was fighting some kind of sickness. Despite the fact that I know, biologically, that there's a whole lot of bits and pieces in his body. But if any one part of his body is sick, the body is sick. So, even though there are many members in the body, it's still one body, And the reason I am pounding that is so that you can get Paul's conclusion, which is, and so is Christ. That's what he's talking about. Ultimately, he's not talking about human biology. 
He's talking about the body of the church. In Christ, we are all one body. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of that one spirit. Okay, now he just described a couple of the biggest social differentiations in ancient Middle Eastern culture. The difference between slaves and free men was enormous. Slaves had particular functions within the society, and free men did not allow themselves to go do the things that slaves were required to do. It's a big difference. There was a big difference in the Middle East 2,000 years ago between men and women. Women didn't have anywhere near the rights or the mobility that women have here in America in the 21st century. Or whether you're talking Jew and Gentile, I think we've expressed that enough now that you understand that the difference between Jew and Gentile was just enormous. It was very big, especially based on the fact that the Jews did have all of these religious advantages, and they had the law, and they had Moses, and they had the oracles, they had the scripture, they had the prophets, they had all these advantages that the Gentiles did not have, and they considered the Gentiles to be unwashed, to be unclean, to be dogs, to be so much lesser than themselves. Paul knows those divisions between people, and he's naming them. That's why he would say that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, There's neither free nor bond. There's neither male nor female. Those were very specific categories he laid out because in his society, those were the things that drove people apart. Those were things that separated people. But in Christ, you're all one. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, We were all made to drink of that one spirit. So what is the cause of our unity? The fact that we all have that one spirit, that same spirit, who works in all of us and distributes gifts and administers gifts within each of us separately as he determines. But it's the same spirit. For the body, says verse 14, for the body, he's talking about the human body, is not just one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not, for this reason, any less a part of the body. So if your foot rose up in rebellion one day and decided that because it's not a hand, it's not as useful as other parts of the body, you can't walk. You're not going anywhere. If your foot doesn't work, well, then that's going to hamper your mobility. And just because the foot isn't a hand doesn't mean that it's unimportant. It's just simply doing its particular function. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. So if the whole body were an eye, now he's getting into science fiction for a moment here. 
If the entirety of what makes up you was just one great big eyeball, then what are you going to hear with? You got to have an ear in order to hear. Where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now, now that you get his example, now that you understand his description of the human body, but now God has placed the members of the body of Christ, each one of them into the body of Christ, just as he desired. In other words, you're in the place you're in within the body of Christ because that's the place that God has given you. That's the place that God has assigned to you. This is how God has worked forever. Way back when he brought Israel out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land, he was in charge of the land apportionments. He told every tribe and every family within the tribe where they would live and where their land was. That's why it was part of the law that you couldn't move the marker stones because that was to change what God had said was the property division between people. So God has always been in charge of assigning a place and a purpose and a future to each of his individual people. So within the body, you don't get to say something like, well, I'm not that guy. That guy gets to do this thing, this guy. Let's say you start thinking, well, I don't get to be song leader. Steve gets to be song leader. Steve gets to stand up there and lead. So who's Steve after all? And that's what you think. Yeah, well, Steve agrees with you. You don't get to do that. Steve has been given the ability to get up here and lead songs because we needed a song leader. Same thing with everybody in the body. Now, I'm going to use an example that is going to embarrass him, but I'm going to do it anyway. In the early days of GCA, I tried to make Jeff something he wasn't. I tried to force him into positions he wasn't comfortable taking. I worked so hard at advancing Jeff that it became a source of contention between Jeff and I. And so now... Jeff isn't doing what I thought he should do. Now Jeff is doing what God has assigned him to do, and he's invaluable to me. I appreciate him immensely because we're not contending with each other anymore. We're in unity with each other because I finally figured out that Jeff was going to be the Jeff that God determined Jeff should be, not the one that Jim determined Jeff should be. And that is the way it is with everybody here in the body of GCA. Everybody has their place. I'm going to give you another example. This morning, Elizabeth said she wants to give a gift to GCA. And I said, get with Tom and he'll tell you what the need is. I said, but we probably don't need it. And she said, yeah, but every once in a while, the heart wants to give. That's her gift. That's what she's about. Anybody who's ever around Elizabeth just automatically gets happy. It's really hard to frown in her presence. But she also just has this giving spirit. Okay, so her husband disagrees. But but she just has this gift. She just has this ability. And she would have just as carefully and quietly 
done what she was going to do, and you probably wouldn't have known anything about it had I not told you. But she's thinking about you. She is a part of the body that is thinking about what she can do for all of you collectively. And that just permeates the body of Christ. Whether it was getting together at Halloween over there with Jennifer, and didn't she do a good job, and we sure all enjoyed that. Just these things that people do for the good of the body. That's the way a body of Christ ought to work. That everybody within the body has a particular gifting and a particular ability, and that's why they're in this particular body of Christ. They're part of this church because you all bring something to this church. That is why earlier I said the face of GCA has been changing lately. But we're still the body of Christ. We're still GCA. After 20 years, we're still here worshiping God because he faithfully has continued to give us the people who do the things that we need done. The most obvious example is there was a guy who used to take care of this building, who used to be the kind of handyman to do the stuff around the building. When he wasn't able to be here anymore, Leon showed up with that exact set of skills. It's amazing. For 20 years, I've been watching God do that. And it's actually fun to watch because God, the master builder, is still in the enterprise of building the church of Jesus Christ. Now God has placed the members, each one of them, into the body just as he desired. Paul is saying that wherever you are in the body of Christ, that's where God has placed you. If they were all one member, remember a moment ago, he said if it was all hearing or all seeing, then you're not going to have the sense of smell or the ability to walk or, okay, so if all the members of the body of Christ, if they were all the same, then where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. You should understand the analogy now that Paul is talking about the body of Christ. That if you happen to be the hand within the body of Christ, you can't say to the eye or you can't say to any other member of the body of Christ, I don't have any need of you. The fact is you do have a need for every single person within the body. Those who have more are going to be able to be more generous to help the one who has less within the body of Christ. Now there are many members, but there is one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker the ones who you would look down on naturally, the ones who are weaker, are in fact necessary. They're part of your growth. They're part of your edification. If there's somebody within the body that you just kind of don't get along with, learning to get along with them is actually good for you. And that's the reason they're part of the body so that you can provide for them and take care of them and lift them up. But it's also good for you so that you learn how to be patient with and how to help people 
who you would otherwise look down on. Everybody within the body has a point and a purpose. After all, he is a sovereign God, and he knows what he's doing as the wise master builder. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness. Whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked that honor, so that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Okay, that's Paul's ecclesiology about the body of Christ, which is the church. Go back to Ephesians now. Now that you know that is Paul's thinking, you can understand his pleas for unity within the church at Ephesus as the Jews and Gentiles are learning to stay together. Verse 6 of chapter 3, to be specific, the Gentiles are joint heirs, fellow heirs. They're going to inherit the same thing you Jews are. And they are fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It had to be a wonderful day for any thoroughgoing Jew when he heard about the Jewish Messiah and found out that he no longer had to keep the law, whom the Son sets free is free indeed, but that through faith in the finished work of Christ, he could actually achieve the promise of salvation and a glorious eternity because Christ himself had established it through his death, burial, and resurrection. And faith in Christ would get you all the way to the promised eternity that God had for you. That had to be a wonderful thing for a Jew to find out. Yes, I was keeping the law. Yes, I was following Moses. Yes, I was following all the dictates. And then Christ, our Messiah, comes just like the prophet said, and then he dies and he resurrects and he's living at the right hand of God to plead my case and plead my cause. And faith in him is now the way that I get that promise. It all worked out so good for me providentially. And then Paul says, oh, yeah, the Gentiles get that, too. You can see where the Jews would go. Hang on. No, no, he's our Messiah. We already went through the 1400 years of the law. We've already been killing the animals. We're already doing all that. So, of course, we would get the Messiah who would then let us be saved through faith in him. But the Gentiles don't have that history. The Gentiles haven't done that work. 
all the Gentiles have been doing is sinning and living after their foreign gods and following after their own traditions and their own flesh and the prince of the power of the air. And now, through faith in Jesus Christ, they too get the same promise of the same reward that we got? How is that possibly fair? So Paul says, they are fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the good news, through the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It would be easy to read right past that and forget the Jewish background, the Jewish history, and how they would resent the idea that these Johnny-come-lately Gentiles, if you don't mind the alliteration, would suddenly get the same promise, would get the same future. Jesus himself told a parable about a man who had a field and he was hiring workers to work in his field. And he agreed that he would pay them basically a penny a day. And so all these workers went out into the field and started working. And then at midday, he hired some more workers. And then he sent them out into the field and they got out there working too. And then there were some who came at the very end of the day and he sent them to work in his field. And they worked for just a short period of time, and then it was time to pay up. And he paid the ones who worked all day the same amount he paid the ones who just showed up. And when the ones who worked all day argued with him, he said, didn't I agree with you for the amount I paid you? I didn't cheat you. You agreed to that, and that's what I gave you. These agreed, and I paid them. And can't I do what I want with what's mine? What was he telling that parable for? He was preparing the Jews for the idea that though they had worked, though they had labored, though they had been under the yoke of the law for 1,400 years, that was their agreement. And the people who came in at the very end, the Gentiles who came to faith in Christ, are going to get the same thing that the people got who had been there working through the whole day because Christ can do whatever he wants with what's his. So the theology is consistent, even though, to the Jewish mind, that would be terrifically unfair. And through his parable, Jesus was demonstrating that he knew what they'd be thinking. They'd be thinking, that's not fair. They didn't work as hard as we worked. Why are they getting the same payment? So, Paul says, they are fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, of which I was made a minister. By the way, it's easy to read that word. When I was in the Lutheran church, we didn't call them preachers. We didn't call them uh, father, obviously. We called them minister. That's what I was raised with, the, the minister of the church. The word that is translated minister here is diakonos. It is that word that means to be a servant, to be the one who's sent on an errand. These days, we seem to think that that word is uh, kind of high and lifted up. Oh, he's the best lit guy in the room. He stands behind the pulpit. He's He's got the microphone on. He's the minister at the church. No, the word that Paul is using is, I was assigned like a slave. I am the servant of Christ Jesus. I am the errand boy of Christ Jesus. That's what the word diakonos means. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. 
which was given to me according to the work of his power. It wasn't my power. It wasn't my decision. It wasn't something I figured out. It was the dunamis. It was the power of God through his spirit, by his grace, that assigned me this job to be the person who distributes the things of God to the Gentiles, to bring you this good news. To me, says verse 8, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. It's an interesting word in the Greek. The NASB went for unfathomable because we don't really have good English words. There aren't a lot of really good Greek words for it. He is saying that this is just as wide and as deep and as high and as broad as anything your mind has ever conceived of. That is what the riches of God through his grace is. We, we haven't begun to understand it. We say the word grace. We say the word mercy. But we haven't begun to really understand and comprehend the glories of God in everything that they contain. They are the unfathomable riches of God in Christ. God has plans for you that he has not revealed yet. God has an eternity for you that you can't fully comprehend. He has to show it to you. And he's going to. And he's got all eternity to do it. And it's never going to get old. And it's never going to get boring. I mean, he has these unfathomable riches, this unfathomable, unthinkable wealth in Christ Jesus. And, verse 9, and to bring to light what is the oikonomia? What is that administering of the gifts of God? In this case, he says, it is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created everything. Not only did he create everything, but he has the ability to reveal what he has created. And at the right time, in the right place, when he was ready, he decided to start revealing these mysteries, even though they were right there in his word, even though he had left himself a testimony to these things, they were nevertheless withheld from human beings so that the people of earth didn't understand it until he was ready to reveal it. The same way that to this very day, people walk and talk on planet earth and don't know anything about God or Christ or his spirit until the moment that God is happy to birth them again, to implant his spirit in them, to bring them to faith in his son. He's still in the business of revealing himself. He's still in the business of waking people up, regenerating people, and calling people to himself. That's the way he has always worked. For ages, these things have been hidden, hidden in God, in order that the manifold wisdom, he's just reaching for adjectives at this point, to try to say the magnificence of God is just so far beyond what we really comprehend or what we really understand. But if you want to see the magnificence of God on display, 
Just think about the fact that you didn't know him. And then he showed you. And you didn't understand these mysteries. And then he showed you. And then there's a book in his word called The Revelation. Because he's in the business of revealing himself. I hope you got that out of last week's lesson on the names of God. The revelatory names of God. He's in the business of revealing himself. And that to us is just unfathomable. These are the manifold wisdoms of God. Where he is doing what he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. With whomever he wants to do it as many times as he wants to do it. Whenever and wherever he does it. And nobody can stop his hand. Nobody can say what are you doing. He's the one who has the wisdom to do whatever he wants to do. And the manifold wisdom of God is now being made known. Follow this logic. Through the church. Jew and Gentile combined, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But he is demonstrating that through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. The church, one of the reasons there ought to be unity within the church, is that the church is God's demonstration of what he's doing in time to all the authorities and powers in the heavenly realms. What he's doing on planet earth right now, one by one selecting individuals, one by one revealing himself to people, one by one placing them in the body of Christ. As he's doing that, he is demonstrating the manifold wisdom that only he has, and he's demonstrating it to the armies of heaven who have never been human, who have never been on the earth. He is saving sinful, rebellious people at this moment to demonstrate his grace to the armies of heaven that are watching him do it to display his own manifold wisdom in the way he does what he does. In other words, you're part of the big plan. You're part of the plan of God that he established since before the foundation of the universe. And he's doing it all to demonstrate who he is and what he's like, not just to human beings, but to all the armies of heaven. They're also watching him do it and worshiping him as he does it. He's revealing himself. In order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places... And this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Two key things. Number one, eternal purpose. Like I said, he decided what he was going to do before he made the first bit of the universe. He determined before the foundation of the worlds who he was going to save, who he was going to bring to himself. He decided all that before he went to work doing it. So everything that he's doing, even up till this very moment, is in accordance with his eternal purpose. But then look at the end part of it, which he carried out in Christ Jesus. Done deal. Yes. He already did it. 
He already finished it. He already accomplished the guarantee of everything that he initiated before he did anything. That's how secure, by the way, you and I are. Because we, by faith in Christ Jesus, are going to be brought like fellow heirs to everything that God has established since before the foundation of the world so that he can demonstrate his own wisdom, his own might, his own power, and his own grace and his own mercy to the denizens of heaven and the denizens of earth. He is constantly self-revelatory, showing himself according to the purpose, his eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom, Christ Jesus, we now have boldness and confident access through faith in him. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the scriptures, the God that the Hebrews knew was a frightening judge. We are now invited to come boldly to his throne, crying, Abba, Father, Paul says this repeatedly, that we should have boldness and confidence in our access to God through Christ Jesus. You, you, sinful you, depraved little wormy little you. I didn't mean to look right at you, but I kind of locked eyes with you. <laughs> but wormy depraved little you now can have confident access to the God who encases himself in a light that no man approaches. And where do you get that confidence? Through Christ Jesus. Because of what God has already accomplished through Christ Jesus. That's what faith in Christ Jesus establishes for you. In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Okay, so that... That was going back through the stuff that we went through two weeks ago. I could call that an introduction since my time is almost up, and then you couldn't count that time against me because there's still stuff to say, lots of stuff to say. There's so much stuff to say that I finish most Sundays and think I didn't get anywhere near where I wanted to get. But let's just close on this thought. Tom, look up Job 2.10 if you would. Steve, look up Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7. Shane, you want to read something? Sure. Philippians 4. Well, I think we're all going to go to Philippians 4. There, you're off the hook. We're all going to go to Philippians 4, and we're going to read verses 11 through probably 19. Hold on to those for a moment, because in arguing for unity within the church... One of the chief reasons that there is disunity within the church is because life is hard. And the difficulties of life causes separation between people and separation within the church. And Paul himself has suffered a tremendous amount of difficulty in order to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And he knows that the hardships that he has suffered is going to make other Christians say, well, I don't want that. I don't want to be part of that. You're saying if I come to Christ, I get this eternal glory, but I also get beaten, and I get stoned, and people hate me, and I get thrown out of my community, and 
all these hardships are going to come my way if I'm part of Christianity. That's one of the astounding things about the book of Acts is that Luke writes about all the difficulties that Paul and his companions underwent, and yet everywhere they go, they're telling people, come join us. It would have to be the Spirit of God that inspired anybody to join them. They wouldn't do it by their own flesh. They'd say, no, that looks hard. That looks like a difficult life. I'm not going to do that. So people are going to lose heart because of the things that Paul has gone through. They're going to lose heart over the difficulties that Paul has endured. So now Paul is going to say, don't do that. Don't lose heart because of what I've gone through. Look at it a different way. Look at it as, even though I've gone through these hardships, they've all grown to your benefit. So it's a good thing. It's a godly thing. It's something that God intended. It's something that God planned. It's something that a sovereign God has taken me through For your benefit, it's a good thing. Therefore, knowing that whatever you're going through, whatever difficulties you have, whatever might come your way that might divide you within the church, instead, bow your knee to it. Recognize that it is the will of God for your life and accept that it is the will of God for your life. It's a two-verse argument. It goes like this. Verse 13, therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. They are for your benefit. And so for this reason, because I know that it benefits you, and because I am a slave of Christ, And because I know I've been given this administration to administer the gifts of God to you, the Gentiles, I endure all these hardships for your benefit. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. He's not talking about physical strength. He's talking about spiritual strength, the ability to endure, the ability to persevere through this Christian life in this Christ-hating world. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. That is thematic in the Bible. Tom is going to read Job 2.10. This is after Job's wife, Mrs. Job, has come to Job and said, Do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That's such an important concept. We receive blessings at God's hand. Then we get used to the blessings. We become accustomed to the blessings, and we think that's how standard Christianity ought to work. And then as soon as things go wrong in our life, we start crying about, where's God in all this? But if you receive blessings at God's hand, that proves that you actually are receiving from God. So the trouble that comes in your life also comes from God because he is sovereign over everything that happens in your life. Here, you want to hear God say it? Steve's going to read Isaiah 45, 6 and 7 for us. 
probably should read verse 5 because it kind of forms a bookend. Sure. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. And then verse 6, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I am the Lord who does all these things. I bring the light. I bring the darkness. It's the same God who we've been reading out of Isaiah. He's the same God who wounded Israel. He's the same God who's going to heal Israel. He's the one who brings good and blessings. He's the one who brings the trouble and the difficulty in life. And he does all those things because he is the wise master builder who is building up his church in faith and confidence in Christ and trying that faith in the fire so that you come out like pure gold. He knows what he's doing within the church. Turn to Philippians now, Philippians 4. And we'll close up with this. Philippians 4. I'll start reading verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have reviewed your concern for me. You have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. How could he learn that? Whatever his circumstances, and he had some bad circumstances. Yes. I haven't spent any time in prison. I haven't been beaten with even one lash. I haven't been stoned and left for dead outside Lystra. None of that has occurred to me. And I have difficulty with being content all the time with my circumstances. I know how, verse 12, I know how to get along on humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and the secret of going hungry, both of having abundance and of suffering need. Here's that secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul has learned and was trying to teach them that whatever your circumstances, whatever you're going through, whatever difficulties come along in this life, just remember that it is the same sovereign God who did it. Bow the knee. Get on your face in front of that God and accept whatever it is that he has for you in this lifetime. And don't let the circumstances of this life and especially the circumstances of this world that are working so hard to create division between us, don't let them do that. Instead, by the power of God, through the Holy Spirit in the inner man, Rest on, rely on his strength to help you endure, to persevere in this wicked world. And don't let the circumstances of your life divide you from one another. Because the truth is, you need each other. I know I need you all. So, whatever happens, bow the knee. Because complaining about it isn't going to change it. But recognizing that it's God who did it will give you the strength to endure it.
That's also Paul who said, there is no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will with the temptation provide a way of escape so that you may endure it. The answer to your problems, the answer to how to endure wealth and how to endure poverty, how to endure being full and how to endure having lack, how to endure absolute freedom of movement or being locked down. The way to endure all those things is to recognize Christ because only through Christ, in Christ, can you do all these things. That is pretty much where I wanted to get to this morning. Next week we will pick up there and read the second part of chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. Again, you'll see Paul arguing for unity. You're going to hear me say that a lot in the coming weeks. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.